I want to thank Russ for his testimony this morning. That's such an encouragement from a fellow cheesehead. And uh, to know that God is still in the business of changing lives. What a story. What an incredible story. That's why we've chosen to use our family sharing for in this uh, context or in this shape and form for a time anyway. There are a lot of stories in this congregation and we need to hear them. It's encouraging to us. By the way, while you're turning to 1 Peter chapter 4, I'd like to ask you please to take a moment at your leisure. And you have a lot of leisure because I'm the one talking right now. Um, fill out your connection card. Would you do that, please? We ask everyone to do this. If you're a guest, don't feel singled out. We ask everyone who attends here every week to fill out a connection card. On that connection card, you can let us know about prayer requests that you have, other concerns that you have, and we take them seriously. We try to pray for those needs every Tuesday in our staff meeting, or Wednesday in our staff meeting. Elam Mission Church exists for the purpose of helping people come to know Christ, know Christ, grow in faith, and become engaged in ministry. If you're looking for a church home, we'd like to tell you you've just found it. We love you. We'd like to have you be a part of our life. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 is where we're spending our time this morning. I think the most frequently heard words of any youthful traveler are a toss-up between how long before we get there and I got to go potty. Now in our family, I think the edge went to the first one. It seems to be sort of a studied preoccupation with where we are, from where we've come, and how long before we get there. Isn't that right? Those of you who've raised kids, you know the experience, right? Yep. yep. <laughs> it's not too different for Christian travelers. Pilgrims are often those who are trying to come to reason with God's travel itinerary. How long before we get there, Lord? How long before we get there? Lots of travelers have made the inquiry. Some think they know. I remember reading a book in 1980, or I didn't read it, I looked at it. I knew better than to read it. 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming in 1988. I don't think it sells too well anymore. You know, I don't think God tires of our asking. In fact, I think he's probably complimented by our asking. It shows earnestness on our part as well as weariness. I think he's impressed that we care about when he's coming again or when we get there. There's another question God is equally, if not even more so, impressed with. What should I do while I'm on the way, Lord? How should I live my life in light of the end? How should I live my life... Till Jesus comes? Good question. And the reason I know God's impressed with that question is because of all the time he takes to answer it in the Bible. Just as he spends a lot of time telling us where we're going, although he properly veils the, purposely veils the arrival time, no man knows the time or the hour, so also he spends a great deal of time telling us how to live in light of the end. And that's what I want us to look at today in the context of Peter, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. How should we live in light of the coming of Christ? How should we live in light of the end? It's a good question. It deserves a fair answer, and I think Peter gives us a fair answer. First off, we should live for God. Sounds so simplistic. 
but it's so absolutely deep, penetrating and profound. Live for God. I remember I led a guy to Christ one time and I began to meet with him on a regular basis. And after a while, he began to distance himself. He was thinking of moving in with his girlfriend and I very tactfully tried to suggest to him that that wasn't a wise move for a Christian man to do. And uh, he distanced himself. He quit meeting with me. It was a couple of years later, quite an absence actually. I had actually lost contact with him. He called me one day. And he said, could we get together? And we did. And I said, what happened? He said, I lost my job. I lost my girlfriend. My life was a mess. One day I was standing in the shower, and it hit me with such a force that it knocked me back against the shower wall. i got to follow Jesus. It's a simple answer for how should I live my life. Live for God. Few religious people would quibble. Sounds great. But the fact of the matter is, it's a very broad subject, isn't it? How do I live for God? How do I know when I'm I'm actually doing that? As I say, Peter gives us some answers to this, this question. We know we're living for God when our mindset is the same as that of Jesus. Look at chapter one or chapter four, verse one. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same attitude. Arm yourselves with the same attitude. He suffered over the issue of sin. Christ suffered in his body. It's an obvious allusion to what he says earlier. Listen to these words. For Christ died once for all, first Peter three eighteen. For Christ died once for all the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. What does this indicate? He did what he did so we could be saved. The same willingness to suffer ought to characterize our lives. It indicates a person's seriousness in following Christ. Peter says, the one having suffered shows that he is done with sin. Do you see it there? Since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. What's the idea behind this? Well, he's so against sinning that he is willing to suffer instead of sin. That's a great attitude. Because that's the same attitude Jesus had. He was so against sin that he was willing to suffer so that we could go free from sin. Peter says the person having suffered due to uh, ceasing from sin does so because his life has taken on an entirely new direction. Catch it, if you will, in verse 2. As a result, as a result of what? Christ suffered in his body, so also you ought to do, have the same attitude. As a result... He does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. He has had more, he's had more than enough time in the old life. He doesn't want to have anything to do, it anymore, to do with it anymore. Look at verse 3. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry, 
I mean, this is a powerful statement when you, when you sit down and take it in. We too often read too glibly, I think, through the pages, and we don't let them sink in, but there's a powerful message right here. If we want to know if our mindset is the same as, as Jesus, we need to see how resolute we are to living the, this alternative lifestyle to which he calls us, in spite of what it may cost. Someone said, if you were put on trial for being a Christian... Would there be enough evidence to convict you? We want to live for God and we want to hold on until the end. Not to hold on in, the, in terms of just barely making it past the pearly gates, but we want to be consistent and finish strong, clear up to the end. We know we're living for God when our friends notice a difference. Look at verses 4 through 6. Our friends should notice both a positive dimension to our change in life, as they did in Russ Morfitt's life, I'm sure, as well as a negative dimension. There are things we do as Christians that are positive. There are things we don't do as Christians. So it's got a, both a negative and a positive dimension to it. Let me tell you a story, a true story about a girl that went to camp. While she was at camp, she heard the gospel. Having heard the gospel, she responded to the gospel and asked Jesus Christ into her life. Then she went home. It didn't take her very long before she fell back into an old pattern, and she went shoplifting. The ironic thing was that she was not apprehended. Nobody caught her. But she went back home, and the Holy Spirit caught her. The Holy Spirit was on her case about it. The Holy Spirit was in her heart and mind and talking to her about it. So she went to her unbelieving mother, and she confessed what she had done. She said, Mom, she said, I've got to take what I took from the store back to the store. I've got to give it to the manager. I've got to explain to him that I took it. Her mother says, of course, her mother was impressed with this. But she said, what, what is causing you to do this? She was puzzled. Why would you want to do it? Well, Mom, a few weeks ago I became a Christian. And Christians don't do things like that. That was the point. Her mother saw. You think she's going to have an impact in her home? Her mother saw a changed life. Now Peter is aware of changes resulting from Christianity. So are others. To some, they're very negative. Many, in fact, are surprised by our behavior. Look at verse 4. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. This is an intriguing word, this word strange. Uh, the New American Standard says they think that they are surprised. Now, strange they think it is, not in the sense of being odd, but the context suggests in the sense of being annoying. They don't like this change that's taking place in your life. To the point where they malign you, they heap abuse upon you. I don't know whether that ever happened to you, but it certainly happened to me. I became a Christian while I was visiting my grandparents in Wisconsin. I went back to Ohio, and everybody and their brother was trying to talk me out of this. My mother says, well, I'm glad you got a little more religion, but you don't want too much religion. How do you figure that one out from your mother? My brother stuck his finger in my face and said, don't you ever talk to me about this again, because I was trying to convert everybody. He's a Christian now. He doesn't even remember saying it, but I remember it very well. My best friend in high school, a guy named Eddie, 
didn't miss an opportunity, absolutely didn't miss one opportunity to um, tantalize me, to intimidate me, to embarrass me. Anything he could do to get to dissuade me from following Christ, he was going to do it. Eddie came to me at our 20th high school reunion and told me he'd accepted Christ as well. But they were there. They didn't like the new world in which I was, into which I had walked. They wanted the old rust. They wanted me to hang with them and run around and drink beer and carry on and do all sorts of nasty things. As F.W. Bear says, and he puts it much more nicely than I would, they feel an unreasonable resentment at anything that does not fit into the pattern of life familiar to them, especially at a conscientious refusal to participate in common diversions, i.e., sin. It's true. For some, it's a surprise because of what is absent. Think it's, they think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation. One translation says, they're surprised you don't run with them. That's an interesting way to put it. It's understandable that you wouldn't, especially if their behavior is like what was described in verse 3 and 4. But a word of caution is here, is, is, is here for us as well. I remember when I first became a believer, I was told by those who were tutoring me and mentoring me, if you can lift the life of those you go back into, the lives of those you go back into uh, uh, living on a daily basis with, stay with them. Stay close to them. You'll elevate their life. But if they're going to drag you down, you need to distance yourself. That was good counsel. Very good counsel. We realize, however, that as far as running is concerned, we're running to the tune of a different drummer when we come to Christ. Hebrews 12.1 says we should run the race set before us. 1 Corinthians says we should run so that we may obtain a prize. Philippians 2.16 says we should hold fast the word of life so that others influencing us spiritually will not have run in vain. So we know we are living for God if our friends notice a difference. So my challenge to you is run the race. Run the race. Think of all the issues in life that are answered for us by that simple little first point we made. Live for God. You may be tempted to be dishonest. Live for God. Run the race. You may be tempted to be immoral or unethical. Live for God. Run the race. Now, Peter's next statement helps us realize the importance of holding the line and of influencing others spiritually. They're going to speak to God someday about their own behavior. Look at verse 5. They will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. See, the reason the gospel is preached and lived is so that others may choose to respond, and when they shall have died, they shall have died having the gospel preached to them. That's the idea behind verse 6. For this is the reason the gospel is preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but, alive, but live according to God in regard to the Spirit. What a wonderful tribute to a Christian to live their lives in such a way that people come to call on Christ because of us. 
Live for God. What do we do until we're hang, while we're hanging out for the end, Lord? Live for God. So you want to know if you're living for God? First off, <clears throat> check and see if your friends have noticed. If they haven't noticed, maybe you're not. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he's already heard this message. <clears throat> How is it seen whether or not we're living for God? Have you taken any abuse? Not necessarily everybody who comes to Christ takes abuse, but plenty of us do. Remember, if we're abused for living the Christian life, we should be abused because of the offensiveness of the gospel. It is offensive to some people. It shouldn't be for personal offense, but we may well be abused. It may be seen in the, in the life that has been changed because of the way we live our life. Reminds me of that little Sunday school song we used to sing. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. If a person's light isn't making a difference, it's either because they don't have one or they've got it under a bushel. Let your light shine. If we're living for God, we'll be influencing the lives of others. That's how to live in light of the end. Live to influence the lives of other people. Peter's not done. He also tells us we should live with a clear mind and self... Oh, I thought you were going to come to preach. No. Thank you. We need to keep it going. Ha, 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 ha. I have water. Thank you. I don't know where this fits. No, it doesn't. <laughs> I think I need a steak. <laughs> He's a good grillmeister, too, I'll tell you. We should live with a clear mind and self-control. Sounds kind of somber, doesn't it? There's a lady that came to me, or she was in our church building one day. She was, this is back in Minneapolis. She was walking down the hall and she was all slump-shouldered and she looked like she just had a bad day. And I said, how's it going, sister? And her indication, her, her, her answer indicated where she was theologically, but also where she was emotionally. She said, well, still saved. I, thought, I said, honey, you're having a rough time, aren't you? When you look at verse 7, if you, if you stop at the first sentence, that's the picture you might get. Oh, man, the end of all things is near. Got a picture of this guy wearing a sandwich board. The end is here. The end is here. Well, that doesn't invite too many people to follow. But look what he says. Therefore, because the end is near, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Interesting statement introduces us to this whole notion of living dynamically for Christ with a clear mind and self-control. It suggests to me that people who know what time it is on God's prophetic, prophetic clock keep their heads. They're not carried away, either by self-indulgence self or excitement. How do we know when we're doing that? Well, I think Peter suggests four ways we know. 
four things that reflect that we're doing that. First of all, our prayer life reflects it. Notice what he says there again in verse 7. Be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. This assumes that we have a prayer life. If not, we're certainly not living as we ought to live in light of the end. But being a responsible part of God's great end-time plan includes an active life of intercession. And it's a dynamic life. Think about it. Who else do you know that can come to, the God, come to God the Father in such an intimate relationship and sit before Him and just pour their heart out to Him and have the confidence that He's hearing them? That's a relationship reserved for Christians. Does he hear the prayers of others? Oh, certainly. But he especially invites those of us to believe, who believe to come and come earnestly and come regularly. So our prayer life reflects it. Our love reflects it. Look at verse 8. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Now this is an intriguing word, this word that's translated deeply. <clears throat> It can be translated earnest, love with a certain sense of earnestness, love fervently, love deeply, the NIV says. You know what it means literally? More literally, it means love strenuously, love intensely. The idea is that it should be active, our love. It's not just something we talk about, it's something we do. We don't slough off when it comes to showing love. And let me tell you what love is. Love is doing what's got to be done. It's a short definition, but I think it's one of the better ones I've ever heard to define love. What is love? It's not a gooey emotion. Love is doing what's got to be done. Two observations. Questions to ask in helping direct our love. Who needs it? Who needs our love? The answer, who's hurting? They need our love. Who's in anguish? Who's suffering from great loss? Who's anxious about the future? Who's overwhelmed but under-encouraged? Who do you know that fits that category? They should be the recipient of our love. We need to respond to these people in all kinds of ways. Maybe it's a card. Maybe it's a call. Maybe it's getting together with them. Maybe it's offering them child care. Maybe it's doing errands for them. Maybe it's doing favors for them. Whatever it is, let's do it. Love does what's got to get done. Now the context suggests that we do this for family members. Because Peter's writing to believers. He's writing, telling fellow believers how they treat one another. That's good counsel. Although we want, we want to know, or we need to know, that those who don't yet know Christ need love as well. But let's just talk about family members. Who's in the sphere of our influence? We have an obligation to the greater body of Christ, but not at the expense of our local fellowship. Get the point? There are people in this congregation who are hurting. They need love. If you know about their need, you have an opportunity to meet that need, to love on them. This is another dynamic of what it means to be a Christian. How many people are out there that don't have anywhere to turn? Humanly speaking, they have nowhere to turn. They burned all their bridges. Not so in the church. Not when the church is standing up and being what God has called us to be doing what's got to be done in the lives of other people. The analogy I use is this. Using the analogy of the body, the, the Bible talks about the, the church being the body. Using the analogy of the human body, 
my hand comes in contact with my other hand more often than it comes in contact with my foot. But whenever my hand comes in contact with my foot, it's so as to assist it. So you may, be, you may have uh, four or five or ten friends here that you're really tight with, and you come in contact with them often. But you can come in contact with other people in this body who hardly know you, like your hand reaching for your foot, so as to assist them. It's a great analogy. Who do I come in contact with only occasionally? Is there a need in their life I can meet? Is there something I can do to show them God's love in a practical way? This is the way to respond to each other's faults. Look at, uh, look at verse 8, the latter part. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Now this is a proverbial saying, and typical of Proverbs, they're used with varying applications. The idea here, I'm told by the commentators, is that love enables us to forgive one another time and time again. Jesus said 70, 70 times 7 times, right? So if we want to know if we're living soundly and soberly in light of the end, if we're living uh, with a clear mind and self-control, we are if we're actively loving others in the body of Christ. Peter doesn't stop yet. How should we live soundly and soberly with a clear mind and self-control as we wait for the end? Our hospitality should be willingly extended. Look at verse 9. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Another interesting statement. Hospitality is one of these genuine expressions of love. It was also a necessity providing for the needs of traveling saints in those days who didn't have places to stay, particularly those who were in ministry like apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. The word hospitality literally means lover of strangers. So it has a broad application, including the concept of an open home. Peter said it was to be a mutual ministry. You notice the word one another. Offer hospitality to one another. It's not just one person doing all the entertaining, all the showing all the hospitableness. It's all of us. So it's a mutual ministry. Something that everybody can do. You don't have to be gifted here. You can do it. This made a deep impression on me as a Christian, as a young Christian. I've told you before about the Corning family. Their house was like Grand Central Station. They never locked the doors. They lived out in the country and I've often said this, it's almost a cliche anymore, I've said it so often, but when you went to bed in the Corning home at night, you never knew who might be there in the morning. People would come during the night. It was, it was an incredible first experience in the Christian community for me. In fact, I thought all Christians lived this way. I was rather rudely awakened when I, when I realized that some people kind of regard their home as a citadel. It's for them and no, nobody else. That's not a biblical pattern. That definitely wasn't the Corning's pattern. And that, that, isn't, that isn't where I cut my teeth. I cut my teeth not in, a, not in a, an environment where people looked at their home as their own castle, but I cut my environment in a place where they just shared everything they had. And it's been part of our marriage as well. We've had lots of people live with us over the years. This thing of hospitality is gladly given, or it's to be gladly given. Why does he say that? Do it without grumbling, he says. What? What's he getting at here? Well, the prospects of showing hospitality can prove demanding, <laughs> to say the least. There could be there a hidden invitation to become resentful. 
In that day, opportunities for hospitality were many and they were often. They were frequent. And appropriately, Peter reminds us against getting sour on the privilege. Nobody ever said to render service only if it's convenient. Sometimes, if not all the time, it's, uh, there's a level of inconvenience, but we're to do it. Live hospitably with one another. Giving hospitality is marked by Jesus, catch this, as a service to himself. Say, what? Where do you find that? Oh, like Matthew chapter 25. Jesus said, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. And what did they say in response to him? When did we see, when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? And what did Jesus say? Whatever you did for the least of these, my brothers, or for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. It's an interesting statement. So some guiding questions. To whom should I open my home? Who would enjoy the benefit of being in my home? Well, again, look within the congregation and look beyond as well. Who do you know who's alone? Who do you know who might enjoy being a part of your home? Let, let, me, let me say something to you here. Uh, not that I'm not already. But I've found a couple of segments of our population. Now you say, well, we're, we're far removed from these people. I've found a couple of segments of our population that could particularly use hospitality. Now I'm not saying that instead of being hospitable to those in the family. But did you know that there are international students that come to the United States? There are thousands of them in the Twin Cities right now. They come here to study, and they can be here two, three, four years and never be invited into an American home. Boy, have we missed it or what? What an opportunity to play a role in somebody's life. You say, how do we make it happen? Well, I think there's a way to make it happen. There's uh, organizations on campus, Christian organizations that deal with international students. That's one way to make it happen. We can call them and say, hey, can you put us in touch with some foreign students? Another group are minorities. We have, we, there's 130 languages spoken in the Twin Cities now. Did you know that? 130 languages. You don't have to master all of them. If you master one language, the language of love, you can show hospitality to some of these minorities. There's a way to do it. I got more ideas than I know how to, what to do with, so if you want to know how to do it, sit, let's sit down and let's talk about it. Because this, this ought to characterize our lives. The other question we need to ask ourselves, okay, when do I start? Well, how about now? See, it's the holiday season. Absolutely, it's the holiday season. Good time to do it. What I'm saying is we've got to be intentional. We've got to set a date. Let's not just hear this and say that was a good idea and never act on it. We're called to show hospitality to one another and not limit it just to one another, but let it broaden and broaden and broaden. You want to know if you're living soundly and soberly in light of the end with a clear mind and self-control? In what way are you practicing hospitality in this day and age? Is your home open or is it a citadel? sparingly and selectively used. The last thing on Peter's list here, at least for today, we know we're living 
with a clear mind and self-control when our gifts are being employed. Verse 10 and 11 outlines several things that are true regarding spiritual gifts, these spiritual enablings. I've identified six. Let me quickly go over them with you. Each believer has a gift, at least one. The New American Standard Version says, as each has received a special gift, verse 10. The Holy Spirit has seen to that. Nobody is ungifted. There's not an ungifted person here who knows Christ. God has given you a gift, at least one, probably a package of gifts that you can find. You can determine what they are. And we'll talk about that in a moment. And you can employ them in ministry. Gifts are special abilities. Capacities for serving. Which God gives to individual believers for service. Service. That's the name of the game. Service. Secondly, each should use their gift to benefit one another. We're given these gifts, verse 10 again, to serve others. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. It's a mark of good stewardship to use our gift to serve others. Thirdly, there are all kinds of varieties of gifts that can be used. All are necessary. And Peter cites some of that here. Whoever speaks, that is whoever has a speaking gift, let him speak as it were the very words of God. Whoever serves, that is whoever has a serving gift, like the gift of helps or the gift of showing mercy or other expressions of practical kindness, let him do so. The idea is there's a lot of variety in the way in which we can serve God. We should take advantage of it. We should use what God has entrusted to us. If you don't know what your gifts are, start attempting to do different things. Try things on for size and see how they fit. If people affirm you and there seem to be results from your ministry, bingo. You've got an area of specialization where you can focus in. Say, I'd like to have some help in this area. Well, I'm glad that you'd like to have help because help is on the way. Help is here today. You can go to the network class that starts after this hour, and that's what it's about is determining what my spiritual gift mix might be and how I can use that to glorify God. Fourthly, gift users should draw attention to the will of God. We're to speak His utterances. We're to speak His word, demonstrate His will by showing His character. Speaking the very words of God, verse 11 says. Fifthly, in our service we should draw our strength from God. You notice... To speak or to serve, we're to speak or to serve with the strength God gives. It's not, we don't minister in the power of the, in the energy of the flesh. We, energy, we minister in the power and the energy of the spirit. God supplies it. And then lastly, through our service, we should draw attention to the glory of God. So that, verse 11, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. You know what Paul or Peter's talking about in one word here? He's talking about employment. God should have no unemployed saints. We should all be engaged in ministry somehow, somewhere, doing something for the Lord. We should be intentional about it. That's how to live our life in light of the end. We want, if we want to know if we're living soundly and soberly or we're with a clear mind and self-controlled in light of the end, we need to ask ourselves, are we serving? Do we have an eye open for what our gifts might be? Are we trying out various ministries so as to determine where we might best fit? Do we have a servant readiness? Or is our attitude is, 
Or is our attitude, let's let somebody else do it? Let George do it. Let Harry, Mary, Fred, or Trina do it. Anybody but me. Which is our attitude? That's how to live with a clear mind and self-control in light of the end. We serve. We serve. There's only a couple of ways to wrap this message up today. There's only a couple of ways to react to it. Consecrate or reconsecrate our lives to Him. Look at what we've talked about today. We've talked about loving each other. We've talked about serving one another. We've talked about uh, living for God. Maybe it's time to, for some, maybe it's time to just say, thank you, God. Thank you have confirmed that I'm on track today. For others, maybe it's time to say, Lord, I've been negligent in this area or that area or the other area. Help me, Lord. Help me to live my life as I should live it with a clear mind and self-control until Jesus comes. Why don't we pray about that right now? Father, with all the hubbub of Christmas coming upon us, help us not to forget the reason for the season, and it's to love and honor our Savior, Jesus Christ. So we come today to declare to you once again, we want to give ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to you. Help us, Lord, to um, not be so casual about our Christian faith that we don't engage those around us by serving them, by loving them. Help us not to be so casual that we take you for granted. Help us to be earnest. You know the needs that are represented in this congregation far better than I do. I'll never know all the needs. Nobody here will ever ever know all the needs, but you know every single need. You know where we are in our spiritual lives. You know whether we've been giving lip service or whether we're consecrated. You know all about us. And we pray that wherever we are in our pilgrimage, You'd reveal it to us, and you'd help us, Lord, to live our lives purposefully until Jesus comes. It's to that end that we give ourselves all over again to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.